Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Leviticus chapter 23. We are in the midst of a series on worship. And we're looking at worship by looking and examining the festivals or feasts of Israel from Leviticus chapter 23. And we are even seeing through the eyes of the Old Testament what the feasts of Israel that God instituted for his people, how they can teach us about our worship of God and how to worship God and, and the value that God places on worshiping him as a community of believers. Way back in week one, we saw that the first 17 chapters of Leviticus point us to the way to God and that beginning in chapter 18 through the rest of the book of Leviticus, it talks about the worship of God. When we come to Leviticus 23, there are seven feasts outlined for us, but we started out by looking at the Sabbath day, and then we started to examine what's called the spring feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits. And today we're going to look at the Feast of Weeks, or as it is more commonly known to us today, Pentecost. Then next week we will look at the three, starting next week, at the three fall feasts, each of the next three Sundays, the Feast of Trumpets, which I'm excited about that next week already, then the festival or the Day of Atonement, and then finally we'll end on September 20th looking at the Festival of Tabernacles. Today we want to talk, though, about the Festival of Weeks, beginning in Leviticus 23, verse 15. But before we even dive into this, we need to go back and remind ourselves of something about last week, the Festival of First Fruits. And that is this. If you notice in verse 10, the Festival of First Fruits could not be celebrated by the people of God until they entered the land. You cannot celebrate what you have not possessed. God wants to give us blessings and favor, and he has a plan and purpose. He told them, I want to give you this land flowing with milk and honey. But there was a generation of the people of God saved out of Egypt that did not believe, and therefore they never could celebrate beyond the Feast of Unleavened Bread because unleavened bread and Passover, that took place in Egypt, and that's where they still were. The only generation that could begin to celebrate these other feasts were those that had faith to enter into the promised land, because we can only celebrate what we have received from God. So I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about the festival of weeks. You see, why is it called also Pentecost? Well, notice in verse 15. You must count for yourselves seven weeks from the day after the Sabbath. The Sabbath that he talked about in verse 11 in relationship to the festival of, Pass of first fruits. From the day you bring the wave offering sheaf, they must be complete weeks, so seven sevens. Then you must, verse 16, count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you must present a new grain offering to the Lord. 
couple of things. The reason we use the word Pentecost to describe this is Pentecost in the Greek language literally means 50th, okay? And just as the Lord came down to Sinai to meet with Moses and give him the law exactly 50 days after the first Passover, so the Holy Spirit came down and indwelt the early church exactly 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead. Something then that we see into God in all of this is, again, how precise God is. God doesn't just choose dates and times haphazardly. God always has a purpose. He's very precise in what he tells his people and why he does the things he does when he does them or when he asks us to do them. That's why you and I, if we're going to follow the Lord, there needs to be an, an orderliness, a discipline, a regularity to our life because that's the way God operates. It's not just like, well, when I feel like getting around to it or, or it doesn't matter what day. or No, no, God says it's got to be exactly on this day because there's a significance to this day and these many weeks and all of this. There's reasons for everything God does. And today, we're going to learn that Part of the fuel of our worship of God as the people of God, just as it was in Moses' day and in Joshua's day, is that we worship a God who is so very faithful. We sung a lot about that today. That he is the God who fulfills everything that he ever promised to his people. That he's a God who finishes what he starts and that's one of the big aspects of the Feast or Festival of Weeks because it is a reminder that God promised a harvest. And guess what? First Fruits acknowledged that it was beginning, but it wasn't all in yet. And 50 days later, oh, it was starting to pour in. And God promised to his people if they just did what he told them to do, they would experience his blessing, his favor, and his harvest. And so this is just a celebration, not only of the provision of God, but again of the faithfulness of God, that he was true to his promises. I love what Joshua says in the book of Joshua towards the end. He tells the people of God, he reminds them of this, not one of the Lord's faithful promises to the family of Israel was left unfulfilled. Every one was realized. That's why we sung even this morning about all God's promises are yes and amen, Paul said to the Corinthians. Not one. If you want to be encouraged someday as a Christian even, and have your faith strengthened, do a study of all the promises of God that he's already fulfilled. Not the ones that he's, all, that he's promised that hasn't yet been fulfilled. Those are the ones we're still looking forward to. But if you want your faith to be strengthened, study all the promises that God has made that he's already come through on. And guess what? You and I as human beings, and you and I especially as the followers of God, we can't point to one of them and say, God, you didn't come through with this. No. Joshua says every last one of them, down to the finest 
detail has come true, you see. That's how faithful God is. That's why we can have such stability and security in our life no matter what we're going through because we know God will always be true and faithful to his word. You and I need to cling to those promises. We need to be reminded of those promises. We need to live in those promises. We need to, to rest in those promises. And that's exactly what the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost was all about. Notice something else. In verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16, when God says, count, count, you know, get the right day, something else he's telling his people is, as how we use it today, mark your calendars, save the date. I have an appointment with you, and I want you to keep it. We've talked all about this through this idea of these feasts or festivals that God set at his appointed times. Again, these weren't man's ideas. These were God's ideas. God wants to regularly meet with his people, and he set a, a course on their calendar, and he's basically saying to them, I want these to be important to you. So I want you to mark your calendars. I want you to save these dates, because then notice verse 21. On this very day, you must proclaim an assembly. And obviously, the implication is a public assembly. I want my people to come together. Very reminiscent of the verse in Hebrews that says that we, as God's people today, even in the New Testament, should not forsake the public assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. It's always been important to God that he have a personal relationship with each one of us, but that he also have a corporate relationship with us as a community of believers, which is why you and I cannot live in obedience to God if we are not part of a local church. You can't do it. You will never live under the blessing and favor of God if, as a Christian, you're not part of a local church because God has said, I want to meet with you corporately. I want to meet with my people as a community of believers because there's certain dynamics that only happen in community, and that's why God calls us into his body and says, regular meetings, mark your calendar, Save your date. This isn't just a New Testament concept. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament as well. Then God says in verse 21, it is to be a holy assembly for you. It is sacred and special to God when he meets with his people. And God is saying, I want it to be as sacred and special for you as it is for me. I want you to hold it in high esteem and high regard like I do. God looks forward to our Sundays and Wednesdays when we come together. Think about that. God's got a bazillion other things to do, right? Like run the universe and answer everybody's prayers and all that. And yet God looks forward to the next time his people come together to worship him and to be in his house. A house, by the way, that we were reminded today is a gift from God. This very place we're standing in or sitting in today. 
Then he says in verse 21 also, you must not do any regular work. In other words, he's saying to his people, take at least one day a week where you're breaking from the routine of life. Because as we went back to the Sabbath, all of us need to rest. We need to come apart from our daily grind, and we need to have a day that we devote to not only resting ourselves physically, but emotionally and spiritually being filled up and refreshed by our coming together as God's people and worshiping God in his house. And then notice, this is to be a perpetual statute in all the places where you live throughout your generations, the end of verse 21. In other words, wherever you find yourselves, if you move somewhere, if you go somewhere, you still need to find a group of people that believe in me where you get together on a regular basis. And oh, by the way, the words perpetual statute mean from God's perspective, this is a non-negotiable appointment. Now think about that. There's a lot in our life that can be negotiable. But God says there should be a certain amount of things in your life with me and in your life with your brothers and sisters in Christ that should be so highly valued, so important, so significant that those things are non-negotiables. And one of those things is our meetings together. That should not be something that, well, if I don't have anything else to do, I'll fit that in. That's, a non, that's not a non-negotiable. That goes back to the idea that God wants to see in his people that we place the things that he values above everything else. That's why Jesus says, I've got to be your first love, not your only, but your first love, you see. That's why Jesus taught his disciples, you need to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all those other things, they'll be added. But first has to come the kingdom of God. God has to be the priority, the things that God values has to be the priority of God's people. How can we expect those that don't know God to look at us and for our lives to be a light and witness to how, how valuable God is to us and how important he is and how significant he is if we're not really valuing the things that he says that we should be doing on a regular basis? With all of that said, let's get into a little bit of the particulars of this festival and see again some ways that we can be better worshipers of God besides having those non-negotiables in our life. Other things that would be non-negotiable is a prayer life, time in God's Word, worshiping God every day, even individually. All those things should be non-negotiables. So, in verse 16, you must count 50 days until the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you must present a new grain offering to the Lord. The words present, again, speak about coming near and approaching God. Why? Because that's really one of the essences of worship is God does everything he can do on his end to get rid of all the obstacles between us and him so that we can get close to him. 
That's what worship is, coming into the presence of God. Or as James says in James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's all about getting close to God and remaining close to God and being close to God. Everything God did in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and all these things was about reminding God's people, I've got to make provision because I'm a holy God and you can't just approach me any way you want to. I have to provide a covering for you just as he did Adam and Eve in the garden because the covering that they came up with wasn't adequate. So God had to slay some animals and put a covering upon them that, that took blood and life because that's how serious and pervasive sin is that God needs to be the one to cover it up. We're going to talk about that next week in a couple weeks with the Day of Atonement. But God does all that so that even though we're sinful, we have a way to approach him because he wants to be close. He wants to be near to his people. And then notice a new grain offering, a fresh one, a recent grain offering. And this, this reminds us that God wants our worship to be current. He doesn't want us to just come in and celebrate and, and worship, you know, the things that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. That's important. There's a time and place for that. But just like our own personal life with God, he doesn't want us to just get to a place where all we can celebrate are the things that used to be in our lives. He wants us to not only celebrate the past, he wants us to celebrate the present and where we are with God right now to not just bring old offerings, but to bring new offerings, to, as a psalmist even says, sing to the Lord a new song. It's okay to do that every once in a while. Why? Because our worship of God should always be current. I love what Jesus says in the book of Revelation to his beleaguered church. He starts out by saying, remember, I am the one who is, who was, and who is to come. And when you even look at that logically, you go, Jesus, you sort of got that out of order, right? Shouldn't it be, I'm the God who was, then the God who is, then the God who is to come? In other words, shouldn't it be past, present, and future? But Jesus wanted his church to understand, I'm also the God of the present. Yeah, I'm the God of the past, and yeah, I'm the God of the future, but I'm the God of the right now, and you need me right now, and you need to hear these truths right now, because this is the now you're living in. I'm so glad God's done all that he's done in the past. And I'm so glad as a Christian, I get to look forward to all the things God will do in the future. But I'm really glad, especially in the days and age in which we're living, that God is the God of the right now. And he's just as real and just as much working and, and just as powerful right now at this moment as he was at any time in the past or will be any time in the future. He is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. A new offering to the Lord. By the way, the word offering means a tribute offering, a gift of recognition, appreciation, and honor to the Lord. Our lives should be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude to the Lord always for, again, who he is and all that he has done for us. And the Israelites were celebrating the fact that they were in the land now. They had entered this land flowing with milk and honey that he promised, and they were beginning to eat the fruits of this land. They were beginning to enjoy the blessings and favor that God had by living in obedience to him. And so there was a lot to celebrate. 
Verse 17, from the places where you live, you must bring, come together, two loaves of bread for a wave offering. We talked about the wave offering last week. Why two loaves? Well, there's a lot of different interpretations and understandings of why two loaves, but I'll just simply make it simple. One of the things could be that what comes from God's faithfulness is enough for both hands. What comes from God's faithfulness is enough for both hands. And we're going to get to this a little bit later. One loaf for me and one loaf to give away. Okay? When you and I live in obedience to the Lord and we live a life of worship, God will make sure that both our hands are filled with his provision, you see. Notice also, they must be made, verse 17, from two-tenths of an ephah of fine wheat flour. Oh, notice this, a little bit different, right, than the unleavened bread. This bread is okay to be baked with yeast. Remember, unleavened bread, no, no, don't get it out of your house. Don't bake anything with yeast in it. There was a reason for that. Now God says, it's okay to bring these two loaves that you're going to wave before me and before witnesses as a thanksgiving to me. It's okay to bake these with yeast. Why? Well, because remember the reason why God told them back in Egypt to bake it without yeast, because they were in a hurry. They were in haste. He could come to them at any moment and say, we got to get out of here. Pharaoh says, it's okay to go, and you got to be ready to travel. Remember, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, ready to go. Well, now that's not the case. See, now the people weren't in a hurry anymore. They were in rest. They were settled in the land. It, it, they didn't need to be in a hurry anymore. They just needed to be settled and at rest in their God and with all that God has provided to them. It's just, again, a reminder of us, God doesn't always want us going hither and yon. God says, settle down, rest, enjoy the things that I have blessed you with. So many human beings live at such a fast pace they never slow down long enough to enjoy the blessings of God. Take a break. Take your foot off the accelerator of your life. And as my parents used to say to me, stop and smell the roses, Jeff. <laughs> Along verse 18 with the loaves of bread, you must also present seven flawless yearling lambs, one young bull, and two rams. They are to be a burnt offering to the Lord along with their grain offering and drink offerings, a gift of soothing aroma to the Lord. In other words, this will smell good to the Lord. This is acceptable to the Lord. This is pleasing to the Lord. But I want to point out something, and this sort of follows through with all of these offerings that God asks his people for. Think of how costly this would have been to a family in an agrarian society that depended heavily on the animals that they raised. I mean, God's asking a lot there, right? That's a lot of animals, and, and they had to be the best. And again, it takes us back to what David said, I will not offer to the Lord my God sacrifices that cost me nothing. God always said, I gave my best for you. I give my best for you. I will withhold nothing good back from your life. 
I just want you to start having the same heart for me that I have for you. I want you to see as you worship me that you're not holding anything back, that you're willing to bring your best, because guess what? No matter what we give to God, we can't outgive the Lord. We will always receive more from the Lord that we can ever give to him. So God says, do I have worshipers who are willing to not hold back but give me their very best, the best of their time, their effort, their energy, whatever, instead of giving me the leftovers, giving me the fringe of what they've got left? Are they willing to bring me their very best? Then he says, verse 19, you must also offer one male goat for a sin offering, two yearling lambs for a peace offering sacrifice, and the priest is to wave them, the two lambs. Now, I got to say, you get this picture of these poor priests up there trying to lift up these lambs, right, and wave them. You have to go back a little ways, but there were actually the parts of these animals that they were waving. It wasn't the entire animal that they had to lift up over their heads and wave. Along with the bread of the first fruits is a wave offering before the Lord. And notice, they will be holy to the Lord, but notice, who's it for? For the priest. What's going on here? Well, again, God is being worshipped in the way he prescribed to be worshipped. And because of it, those worshippers are being blessed and God says, I'll continue to provide for you as you worship me and put me first in your life. But also there's this principle that now we're starting to see where as God's people worship him, he will make sure that those who need to be provided for are provided adequately for through who? Through the people of God. And that principle is still the same today. I stand before you as your pastor and I'm here and I can do what I can do because you take care of me and my family. That's part of, you know, the offering that you make. Obviously, besides taking care of other ministries and this building and everything, God's always been that way. He's always promised those who are willing to follow the call into ministry that I will lay it upon my people's hearts to not only be blessed as they worship me, but to bless you by making sure that your needs are taken care of. That goes all the way back to the Old Testament. That's not just a New Testament principle, see? Because again, God says, you worship me, you'll be lifted up. And I'll provide for you, but I'll also provide enough for you so that you have an abundance that you have leftovers that you can bless others with. It's one of the reasons why I love, just one of the reasons why I love the story of Jesus feeding the multitude in the New Testament, one of the few miracles that you find in all four Gospels. Because Jesus turned to his disciples, you remember that, and said, you feed them? And his disciples like, feed these thousands of people? Jesus, we don't, we got nothing. Uh, we don't even have time to walk into the nearest town. And, and how could we even have enough money to buy all the food that we would need to feed thousands of people? And he said, trust me. He said, what do you have? They started looking around. They found this little guy that had the five loaves and two fish. They bring it back to Jesus. He said, fine, that's just enough. And he starts multiplying it. And you know the story. 
Jesus not only provides enough food that all those thousands of people are filled, but guess what? How many baskets are left over, if you know the story? Twelve. One for each of the disciples. Because what was he trying to teach his disciples? I'll work through you to bless others, but I'll never forget you. I'll make sure that you have yours too. But I want you to have enough faith that you will live to bless others and that you'll trust me enough that I won't forget you and I'll make sure that you're provided for too. I'll give you a, each a basket, you see. That's what's going on here in the Festival of Weeks or Pentecost. That's why then notice verse 22. I love this because we are not only being reminded today that we worship a God who is so faithful, that all his promises are yes and amen, that every promise he's ever given to God's people, none of them is unfulfilled. Every one of them is realized, as Joshua said. And Paul even says to the Philippians, be sure of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will what? Continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He'll complete it. God always finishes what he starts because he's that faithful. So we worship a God of faithfulness. And we can be faithful because he's so faithful, right? But we also worship a God of favor because always on God's mind and God's heart is that the blessings and favor that he bestows on us doesn't just stay with us. That we are simply a channel we're a conduit of blessing to others, that God blesses us so that we can be a blessing to others. And obviously, it started with the priest who spent his life in God's service in the house of God, but it didn't end with the priest. Notice verse 22. When you gather in the harvest of your land, I want to point this out. Notice again, like it was last week, it's not if, it's what? When. Because God says, you trust me, you put me first, you worship me, there will never be a question of if, just when. When you gather in the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field. You must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must leave them or literally relinquish them for the poor and the foreigner. And he ends by saying, uh, I'm the Lord your God. In other words, this is God speaking to you, in case you had any question. This is coming right from me. This is the way I want my people to live. This is how you can worship me. Several principles here that I want to remind us of. Grace experienced becomes grace expressed. When you and I as the people of God experience the grace of God and receive his grace in our lives, we will want to express it both to God in worship and to others to bless and benefit them. It will never just sit with us. The other principle is this. The evidence of gratitude is generosity. The evidence of gratitude is generosity. God says, look at all that I've given you. You can always leave corners of your field for the others that don't have what you have. 
And obviously, if you know your Bible at all, you're immediately going to the book of Ruth, right? A great story. The book of Ruth has much of this same ideas in. That's what God wants to see. Why? Because God is a generous God. Because God is a gracious God, and he wants the hearts of his people to be filled with grace and generosity. Because again, God never has withheld anything back from his people that is good and beneficial and profitable. And in fact, God did not hold back the one and only Son of God, Jesus. He gave him for us so that we could have an eternal relationship with our God in glory. We are blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. Well, you can leave Leviticus 23. We're going to wrap it up here in just a moment. I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians for just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. I mentioned this verse last week. We just looked at it briefly, but I want to look at it a little bit harder today in light of the message today. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 8. God is so faithful, and God bestows his favor and blessing. So here's the principle, even out of the New Testament. Paul says, And God is able to make all grace overflow to you. All blessings. All favor, you could put in there for the word grace. Now, here's where we get into trouble sometimes as Christians. We'll look at that phrase out of that verse and go, you know what? I know that's true for so-and-so, but I'm not really sure about me. That's where we've got to make it personal, folks. Again, you and I have to believe that for ourselves or else we don't live it if we don't believe it. One of the sermon series that God's leading me to, I think, that's going to happen next year is, do we believe what we believe? Because a lot of times it's crazy. Oh, I believe that. Really? Because if we really believed it, I think our lives many times would look a little bit different than they do. God's word, God himself says, I am able to make all grace overflow to you. God wants to pour his grace, his favor, his blessings into our life so that, so that, because you and I then would have enough of everything in every way at all times, that simply means God will make sure we have all that we need, which will lead to a place where we learn to be content with what comes from the hand of God. Okay? It doesn't mean God's going to give us everything we want. It does mean God will make sure that he's enough and that we have enough. Okay? And that you and I then have to learn to be more thankful and more content. But it doesn't stop there. God will make sure that he overflows his grace so that we have enough, so that in everything, in every way, at all times, here's the end. 
you then will overflow in every good work. In other words, God is saying, I'll make sure that you're abounding so that you can be, in a sense, in a place where you're super abounding, where you can go above and beyond, and where you then can take the blessings that I've given you, and you can share them with others. Same thing that we read in Leviticus. Don't glean the corners. Make sure you always have leftovers so that when I tap you, when, when I move in your life, when I work in your life, you then can be a blessing to others. And, and I want to pause here and say this, because I think this is so important. Even we Americans, most of the time when we're talking about these things, we automatically go to the material and physical. And I'm not saying that's not what he's talking about. Obviously, in Leviticus 23, he's talking about food. He's talking about grain. He's talking about physical things. But God doesn't stop there. God is saying, I'll not only bless you physically to where you can bless others physically and materially, I'll bless you emotionally so that you can be an emotional support and comfort and refreshment. I'll bless you spiritually so that you have so much abounding in you that you can come alongside of others and you can also be a spiritual strength, a spiritual refreshment, a spiritual encouragement and comfort to them as well. You can give them hope when they have no hope. You can bring joy into their life where they have no joy. You can offer them peace from me where they have no peace. These are the things that God wants to overflow in our lives so that in a sense our life is like a river that runs over its banks where we're just receiving from God all that he wants to place into our lives so that not only are we totally full and filled up and satisfied and content, but our lives are literally continually overflowing to bless others around us as well. That's what 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is all about. Blessed to be a blessing. Worshiping the God of favor who never wants the things that he's blessed us with spiritually, emotionally, materially, or physically to stay just with us but to always have in the back of our minds, God, as I'm worshiping you, I'm realizing that one of the great ways you delight in worship is to see people who are just your channels. And you bless them, and you keep pouring into their life, and they just keep pouring it out into others. Because here's the principle. When God sees a group of people like the Oasis, who have that heart for other people, God just continues to bless us so that we can continue to bless others. And I just want to tell you how proud I am to be a pastor of a church like this, that over the last 10 and a half years, you have been so willing when we have made a need known to step up and be right there, whether it's a spiritual need, an emotional need, a physical need, a material need, whatever it is, you guys have been right there. That's worship. That's being the people of God. And God not only wants us to be that as a community of believers, he wants us to be that individually. He wants us to be that as a family where we don't glean the corners of our fields and where we say, God, you blessed me. Now I want to be a blessing to others. I want all the grace that has overflowed from you into my life to overflow to others too so that I can bless them. Blessed to be a blessing. I'm going to ask you guys to just stay seated. 
I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team if they would come up, because I just want to talk to you all for just another minute while they're getting set. What we've talked about today is that in the Festival of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, however you want to call it, that we worship God because he's so faithful. And we worship God because he's a God of favor, who favors and blesses our life. But here's how that principle works. You and I can't bless others the way we could or should if we're not receiving from God what he wants to place into our lives. Sometimes that means then we need to get rid of our stuff that we're carrying around because we can't receive from God the things that he wants to give us because we're carrying around other stuff that's not as valuable as the stuff that God wants to give us. So as we sing this song this morning, a song that many of you at the Oasis are very familiar with, Open Hands, be mindful of the fact that this isn't just about living with open hands as far as, Lord, whatever you've blessed me with, I'm willing to share it and give it out to others. But before I even get to that step, I've got to have open hands and open arms to be able to receive from you because I'll never be able to bless others the way I should if I'm not receiving your overflowing grace into my life, however you want to bestow that. I've got to empty my arms and hands of less valuable, less worth, uh, worthy things so that God, I can receive all of you and all that you want to give me so that I realize how, how blessed and favored I am by you so that I even have a heart that's willing to share more of what you've given to me. So now let's stand. And as we sing, let's be mindful this is not an either or Proposition. This is both and. As we sing about having open hands, as we celebrate the God who is faithful and the God of favor today, let's be remindful that those open hands have to start with God, give me what you want to bestow upon me, what you want to give to me, so that then I can take a portion of that and I can bless others with as well. You ready for open hands? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for blessing our lives and favoring us like you do. God, you give us more than we could ever imagine. And Lord, if you never gave us one more thing from your hand, we have more than we would ever need for the rest of eternity, God, because we have you. And so, God, I pray today that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving and gratitude and appreciation and gratefulness, God, for who we are in you and what we have in you, for all the promises that you've given us, God, for how faithful you are to your people, and that we will always, if we trust you, have everything that we need. We'll have enough, God, and not only enough for us, but we'll have enough to bless others with as well. And so, God, I just pray today that all of us in this room and us as a church that we will corporately just open up our arms and open up our hands as we sing this song. And God, we'll receive from you so that we can bless others in return. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.